tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. That's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. coming and it's time to panic. I mean, that's kind of funny when you're little. December is the longest month in the year as you remember the little the little calendars that you open the little door and cheat and peek ahead and it just seemed that December never went. It just then you become a grown-up and and especially if you're a parent, December is the shortest month in the year as as you begin to panic <laughs> and the words that all parents dread some assembly required. All right, let's pray in the name of the father, the son and the Holy spirit. Come Holy spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan, and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, let's open the big book on the coffee table. The first reading today, uh, you know, from Jeremiah, I, I, I wanted to mention just, I sort of said I'd mention this and I'll, I'll, men I'll talk about it. Um, the land of the north, uh, the, therefore the days are coming. The reason I'm jumping into this end of the pool is because I, I'm going somewhere completely different after I dispose of this idea. But I, I find that this little phrase mystifies some people. Therefore, the days will come, says the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but rather as the Lord lives, who brought the descendants of the house of Israel up from the land of the north. And from all the lands to which I banish them, they shall again live on their own land. The land of the north, if you look at a map of the Middle East, you will see that Babylon and the Tigris-Euphrates Valley and the Assyrians are really north of of Jerusalem. Uh, let me let me pull up a map here while I'm thinking of it. Um, to get to Jerusalem uh, from the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, you you really have to go north. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Fertile Crescent. But the Fertile Crescent is um, um, 
of a crescent, a geographic crescent that stretches up from from um, the Tigris Euphrates Valley up into uh, Syria, northern Syria, and then back down again. So the the Assyrian heartland we think of it as east of the Holy Land, but it's really northeast. That would be Assyria. And remember, Israel had been exiled to, uh, um, the northern tribes had been exiled to Assyria. But Babylon is due east of Jerusalem. So what's he talking about, the lands of the north? you got to go north to go east because there is a desert between the Tigris-Euphrates Valley and the Jordan Valley. It is a, a really a, a wasteland. Um, and so they thought of it as the exiles would have gone north. That's what they mean, the land of the north. Um, now, other people might interpret that differently. They might think of it as Europe or something. No, it's, it's, what it's referring to is... is uh, is the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, which the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates are, in fact, north-northeast of, of the Holy Land. So I just, I don't know if you lose sleep over that. Uh, now you can rest calmly. However, I think it's a very, very interesting and important juncture in the life of Israel because the exiles, it, Let me let me go back and, and kind of, reprise a little history. The Babylonians destroyed the temple around, well, I think it's 580 BC, but let's say 600 BC, and then 500 BC around, you know, I, I, I'm painting bright colors and big letters, but, uh, you know, 70, 80 years later, later, the exiles came home. And there's a huge, huge um, difference between the the exile of uh, the northern tribes and the exile exiles of the southern tribes. The difference is this: that that the southern tribes of of Judah and Benjamin and 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 the Levites who went with them, and actually uh, Simeon, the tribe of Simeon, had been absorbed into the tribe of Judah in the south. These southern, these southern Israelite people maintained their ethnic and religious identity in their exile. Now they were not taken into slavery in Babylon; they were just exiled in, into into Babylon and uh, and in Assyria. They they weren't interested so much in enslaving them as they were enslaved in Egypt. But in, in what we would call ethnic cleansing, they wanted to get rid of people in an area. And if you remove people from their place, you remove them from their gods. Gods were gods of the place. And so the Assyrians knew that if they could take the, the Israelites out of Israel and then put other people in there, they would, they would own them. Uh, not, not as slaves, but just as, as, as political assets. Well, the Israelites had, had in the north, had, had mixed the worship of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with the gods of the place. They worshipped, you know, the Lord was one of the gods they worshipped. And they, they, 
kind of mixed in the worship of the Baals, who are the the lords of the place, these these fertility gods of the Canaanites, in with the worship of the Lord, and you know they they had these alternate worship sites, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And when they went into exile, they vanished because they they had lost what they believed in. However, there were successful reforms in the South that purified the religion of Israel. And when they went into exile, those reforms continued and they came back. They went into exile in a certain sense as the southern tribes of Israel. They came back. Now, uh, I'm using this word advisedly. They came back in a certain sense as Jews. Judaism, the religion of the Torah, the religion of the synagogue, really seems to have found itself in the exile in Babylon. You know, again, I've shared this with you. You're not going to find a synagogue in all the Old Testament. You'll find synagogues in the New Testament, but not in the Old Testament. The synagogue is not part of the religion of Israel, strictly speaking. The synagogue is a place where you can be an Israelite without a temple. You can be a perfectly good Jew and never darken the door of a synagogue because the religion of Israel is a very domestic religion. You pray where you are. It's a religion of the family and the home. You only were expected to come to the temple three times a year if you could. Uh, uh, Pentecost, Passover, and uh, uh, the Feast of Booths. That was it. Now, the synagogue was a place where Jews who were scattered through the world, either by exile or by trade. Even in the first temple period, it seems that there were uh, trading colonies of, of Israelites all up and down the African coast as far as India. And there is some theory they even got to northwest Europe. Um, that's for a different day. So the synagogue is the invention of the exile in Babylon. And that's where what we think of as Judaism, this, this respect for the 613 commandments of the law, that's where it was formed. And because they, they maintained their commitment to the, their faith, they did not lose their ethnicity. There's a lesson in, in, in this for us. You know, we emigrate, when we think of our religion as uh, this was what we did back home, in the Philippines or in Mexico or in Germany or in Ireland. No, this is not what we did back home. This isn't our ethnic custom, though ethnic customs are very beautiful. This isn't our ethnic custom. This is truth. And this is the way that the Judeans looked at the faith, at their faith. And that's how they became, in a certain sense, Jews. And I say this with great admiration and realizing that we we Catholics have to understand that we're not Catholic because we're Irish or Polish or German or, you know, there's a whole bunch of German Catholics. Um, This is not our ethnic identity. This is the truth. It has formed our culture. And thus, I I often say that culture is... uh, uh, When culture is the servant of faith, it's beautiful when faith is the servant of culture, not so much. 
you know, uh, what I mean by that is we express our belief in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, with ethnic customs. That's great. But when our it's the other way around that, well, we express, you know, I'm, I'm Polish, so we do this at Christmas. No, no, no. I'm Christian, so we Poles do this at Christmas. It's, it's a subtle difference. I don't know if you're understanding what I'm meaning, but faith is not the servant of culture. Culture is the servant of faith. It's wonderful when culture is the servant of faith or ethnicity is the servant of faith. It's not good when faith is just, you know. The, for instance, Irish Catholic. If the emphasis is on Catholic, fine. If the emphasis is on Irish, well, they're lovely people, but it's not the faith. All right, I, I, I let's get on with the, what I really want to talk about here. Um, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous shoot to David. Well, that's interesting. A, a righteous shoot to David. I this word righteous. I have puzzled for much of my life over the meaning of the word righteousness or or justice. I mean, the word um, is translated alternately. Um, you can hear me clicking away. Uh, but uh, the word is, is, is kind of translated alternately. Uh, justice, righteousness, same, same word in Hebrew and in Greek. Let me, let me find the word here. Uh, yeah, righteousness. It's uh, tzaddik. Uh, that's righteousness, tzaddik. Uh, tzedakah is charity. It's the exp- charity is the expression of righteousness. It's almost the same word in Hebrew. And we don't think of it that way. Uh, it, 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 tzaddik means just or righteous. Uh, and uh, the, the word uh, tzedek is righteousness. Tzedekah is charity. Uh, it was the custom, and we had a similar custom, but the custom of, of Jews to this day is to have what they call pushkis. They're little boxes, little, little, you know, boxes you put money in. We used to do that for the missions, and it's maybe it's still done in some places. But these pushkis, a little Jewish kid, before sundown on, on Sabbath, on Friday night, because you don't touch money on Shabbos if you're Orthodox. You don't even talk about it. They would put uh, some money in a box, you know, be kept in the dining room, you know, uh, sideboard, You'd, you know, for trees in the Holy Land, for the Hadassah, which is their equivalent of, you know, the, the ladies' uh, charitable organization, that sort of thing. Uh, they were encouraged to do that, and, and they were taught the tradition of philanthropy, uh, and, and it's a wonderful practice they have. On the box in Hebrew would be the words litzedekah, for the sake of, for charity. But it really also means for the sake of righteousness. In English, when we think of justice, we don't think of charity or kindness. You know, you're going to get yours and I sucker, I'm going to get mine. That justice, righteousness, we have that, that picture of justice or that statue of justice with the scales. And that's, that's very Greek. The word dike in, in Greek, which is, uh, Justice, it has to do with weighing and balancing. Uh, but we have that picture of justice with the blindfold on. The Hebrew concept of justice has no blindfolds on. 
justice is right relationship. And we define this as, as this is the theological definition of righteousness. It is right relationship to God and to man. So it has no blindfold. You know that, that, um, you know, that uh, you who are parents know that some kids just take a little more attention than others. You know, the, the, the runt of the litter might, might need a little more attention, that sort of thing. That justice in the, in, the, in the Catholic sense and in the Hebrew sense, justice really looks at the person squarely. Now, let's go back to the reading because... It took me the longest time to understand this, that, that, that righteousness, justice, is a reflection of the very nature of God. God is truthful. God is, not, the scripture says elsewhere, not a respecter of persons. But God includes mercy and generosity and kindness in his, in his nature. Uh, that, that to be righteous is, ref- is to reflect the nature of God. God is always truthful, but if there is repentance, there is mercy, and there's mercy only if there's repentance. God is absolutely truthful and shines the light of his truth on all things. And then when I recognize the truthfulness of God and realize I have sinned, I have done wrong, then God's justice affords kindness and mercy. And I think St. Joseph, about whom we hear in the Gospel, Matthew, the first chapter, the 18th verse and following, teaches us what righteousness is, because it says that uh, our Blessed Mother was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit, and Joseph, her husband, since he was a righteous man, since he was a just man, he was what the Jews would call a tzaddik. If a Jew ever calls you a tzaddik, it's the highest compliment he can pay you. And what does it go on? Joseph, because he was a tzaddik. He was a righteous man, was unwilling to expose her to, to shame. He was unwilling to expose her to the full penalty of the law. For us, justice is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the law on you. You'll be hearing from my lawyer. I'm going to get justice. That's not That's not. That's not what we mean as Catholics by justice. It's not what the Hebrew word means by justice. That Joseph wanted to spare our blessed mother, who for all, now now understand, I believe fully in the virgin birth. I, I have no doubt about it. But Joseph must have been at, just at loggerheads. He must have just been utterly flummoxed by this this innocent and wonderful woman to whom he was engaged, that she was found to be a child. And when we think of justice, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to expose you to the law. Joseph's case with his eyes open, no blindfold said, I need to make sure that this woman does not suffer the consequences of the law. That was justice. It's almost the opposite of what we think justice to be. So when we talk about justice as Christians, we're talking about reflecting the very nature of God, which is absolutely truthful, yet absolutely merciful. In God, justice and mercy are essentially the same thing. What? You know, we think I can be just or I can be merciful. No, in God, justice and mercy are the same thing. Well, if God and his justice can 
allow people, can send people to hell. No, no, no. God and his justice doesn't send anyone to hell. He finds us there in our absolute self-centeredness. God, if we choose hell, allows us to choose it in his mercy, in his justice and in his mercy. He gives us what we are, in fact, asking for. And so many of us are asking for hell in the way we live. We may say, oh, I want to go to heaven. But then we live an absolutely self-centered life in which we say, I, I, I want to go to hell. I want to, I want to be alone for eternity. In, in God, I believe justice, justice and mercy are the same thing and inseparable. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but I've certainly thought about these things for a long, long time. And I look at St. Joseph, and I think Joseph teaches us what justice is, to be a just man. Is to is to extend mercy where mercy is uh, where mercy is appropriate. All right, let's go to a break. We will come back. Um, you know, I I, I, I oh eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. And you know, I don't have many letters. Goodness, was it something I said? Chestnuts roast. <laughs> we'll we'll do. There's one letter I want to do. Just uh, a little bit. <laughs> and, uh, Jack then we will um, we'll uh, go to the word of the day and take calls. So do call in early, 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. And folks dressed up like Eskimos, everybody knows a turkey and some mistletoe. If you are in the market for health insurance, our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is here to help you and your family find the most cost-effective health plan. Learn more at relevantradio.com slash forester. Mamacita. Actually, the custom for the uh, for the uh, Latinos that I knew, the Puerto Ricans, and I think it's true for Mexicans too. The big deal you get the toys on the feast of the three kings, and you would put a box of grass underneath your bed for the camels. Uh, and of course, the Germans do Saint Nicholas, which is, uh, uh, you know, which. There's a particularly Germanic spin on it. Uh, Nicholas is, is followed by Schwarzpeter, who's a little a little imp who, uh, with a stick or a, a reed, to beat the bad children. That's that's kind of the way we Germans celebrate the the giving of gifts at the holidays by beating bad children. But hey, all right. Again, the the uh, the uh, Watsi, The the phones are open at eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. Got a lot of lines open, and I'm only going to do a couple letters. But um, here is one that I wanted to um, to to share from. Well, this is an older letter. I mean, me to get to it from Allie. Recently, I attended a Sunday Mass. It was incredibly beautiful as the homily was given by a newly ordained deacon and someone <clears throat> also received their first communion. The joy was palpable until right before the final blessing, we got the everybody please sit down and listen to so-and-so pitching a parish ministry. <coughs> Excuse me. 
Oh, I should press uh, the cough button. Yes, I got to press a cough button. Yeah. <clears throat> yes. Good the, grief. The, good grief. The wags in the production department have brought to my attention that I cough more than I should. All right, moving along. Uh, it, uh, it, we got the everybody please sit down and listen to so-and-so pitching a parish ministry. Felt like forever, and I found myself frustrated. Then we stand up to hear the announcements, which happened to be lengthy too. I felt the joy slip away to fussing, and I wondered if it was me or if there's some liturgical oversight that happened that day. I felt the Mass was hijacked in its reference. I love my parish and didn't like being cranky. Because it's not typical for us, but thought um, you could tell me if I had a bad attitude or what. No, I, I, I you know, it is fascinating to me, uh, the announcements. Uh, every single group in the parish comes up before Mass, at least when I was a pastor, and they would say, Father, we have these very, we, can you announce this? And Father, not wanting to be, wanting to be the bad guy, would say, oh, sure, and what you do is you get... And the Women's Left-Handed Knitting Society will not meet in the large hall, but will meet. And that there's eight of those. And the, no one hears them. Uh, if you are in charge of announcements in a parish, or Father, if this is you, the pastor of the parish, no one is paying attention to the announcements. It's, it's five or six minutes of business uh, to which no one pays attention. And I really think that that uh, my correspondent is correct in that it is kind of a liturgical abuse. Um, the Mass is not a community meeting. Not a community meeting. Uh, when I was a lad, we had the announcements uh, right after the Gospel, and then there was the sermon. That was just as bad. People don't pay attention to announcements. Um I developed a system when I was a pastor that worked wonderfully. It was, uh, uh, we, we, we didn't have announcements. At least I tried very hard not to, not to have announcements. What you did was the announcements are, are posted on, uh, email. If you want to be on the email announcement list, um, um, send me an email to that effect. That was the announcements. People, when they get an email, they look at it, and the the uh, um, uh, it really solved the problem. And well, what about people who don't have email? There, especially a lot of us old folks, we don't do email. That's less and less true, of course. But for them, you you can print up the announcements and you put them, you post them on the parish bulletin board. You say the announcements are posted on the parish bulletin board. Uh, and uh, if you do not get them by email, it worked wonderfully that that uh, people really got the announcements. They they read the announcements. Uh, whereas when you have 20 announcements and 10 minutes of mini sermons at mass, all it does is make people irritated <laughs> and they're just sort of drumming their fingers and tapping their toes waiting to get out. So to minimize announcements. Well, this is really important, Father. It couldn't be that important. You would have sent it to me earlier. You would have asked me to put it in the announcement blast. And it also was very useful when someone passed away. I could, I, I would just send news of a death in the middle of the week uh, um, 
to to uh, the, the parish email list. You have to make the email list short. You, you can only put, I think, maybe 50. I, it was less than 100 because uh, there would be sort of an automatic email thing, like they didn't want you to do an email blast. Uh, so you make a series of lists, list A, list B, list C, and, and you know, you get a few hundred people, and word got out. It really worked. So... I agree with the listener. Sometimes we, we, we somehow think the Mass is a meeting of the parish, and we should sit down we'll have the business meeting. Now, that's not what Mass is about. Mass is the worship of God. It isn't about announcements. Well, there will be exceptions. No, there won't. Don't make exceptions. Say, give me your announcement. I'll send it out today, but we're not going to announce it to the congregation. Trust me. Nobody listens to announcements these days. Uh, you know, I, I'm an old guy, so I'm stuck on email. Maybe there are better ways to do it, but I think email is the most general thing that people do do get. So um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but it really, really works to have a, a, an email list, send the announcements out to the email list. People who don't get on the email list or don't want to be on the email list, they're not going to want to hear the announcements anyway, and they're not going to come to the ladies' left-handed knitting circle or get involved in the uh, candle wax melting recycling committee. Uh, they're not going to. So interested people will say, yeah, I want the announcements. Uh, uh, put me on the list. So I thought that, I, I just think that, that uh, you're right, uh, Allie, that those are, announcements don't work. Uh, I got a very um, sad note from Julie. Uh, I mentioned my uncle who was killed in his store uh, in, in, uh, uh, in a few days ago. Uh, I forget the context even, but uh, um, uh, she mentioned that her husband was murdered. You know, um, those tragedies of violent death, um, how do we, how do we, cope with them. Remember, our Blessed Mother lost a son to violent death. You know, that that, um, that God's love extends in a very unique way, I think, uh, to the violence of, of human society. And, you know, that, that um, well, can't God do something about this? Yes, he did. He sent his son. And the cross is a sign that the Lord is not deaf to our prayers. He enters into the most painful experiences we have. Um, so just for those of you who have, who have lost someone, um, a son or a loved one, remember that you, you stand at the foot of the cross with the Blessed Mother and all things will be made right. There is no tear that is lost to God. All right, let us go to a break. We will come back with uh, a word of the day. All right, and uh, uh, it'll be a fun one. Have a holly jolly Christmas. It's the best time. Network sponsor TimeBank can make remote account opening easy. No matter where you are in the country, they offer mobile and online banking and knowledgeable bankers that answer the phone. More information at time.bank. That's time.bank. Member FDIC. Joy to the world, the sea. 
Do call in at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. Let us go, however, to the word of the day. This is a word of the day which always upsets us Catholics. <laughs> when Joseph awoke, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took his wife into his home. Well, first of all... Uh, there are all sorts of pious people who say it would not have been a scandal for our Blessed Mother to have been pregnant because when you were engaged, you were in effect already married. And it was pretty, I talked to Rabbi Lazowski, not Rabbi Lefkowitz, may he rest in peace, but Rabbi Lazowski, uh, who said, no way, you don't, in Orthodox Jewish life, you do, there is no intimacy. There isn't even the casual hello until you have been married and exchanged, signed the contract, exchanged the vows, under the chuppah, which is a chuppah, is a, a canopy. So that that's nonsense. That, well, it would not have been a scandal because they were engaged. It would have been a scandal, trust me. Uh, that's not what I want to deal with here. Uh, the the uh, He had no relations with her until she bore a son. Well, that means that, that afterwards they would know our Blessed Mother had one child, Jesus. It is clear from the scriptures that Jesus was her only child. She stood alone at the foot of the cross. If she had other children by her relationship to St. Joseph, it would have been as if the law that she be cared for by them. But Jesus told John, the beloved disciple, who many people think, and I agree with them, was actually a relative of Jesus, take care of my mother. A beautiful old uh, song, uh, an old, uh, uh, it's a very sad spiritual, uh, uh, take my mother home and I'll die so easy. Jesus from the cross saying, take care of my mother. Uh, And for those people who think that Jesus didn't care about his mother, well, that was one of the last things he did in his, in his, uh, uh, pre-resurrection bodily life. He, he took care of his mother. Uh, so uh, that's, I think, a very important thing to understand. Now, this word until in Greek is heos, and it has, not, it has no, you could almost read it, he had no relations with her in the period before she bore a son. It had no implication uh, about uh, what happened after. Uh, the biblical evidence for that, I think, is easily found uh, in, uh, let me pull this up. This is the story of uh, uh, Michal, or I say Michelle, to keep it uh, uh, clear. Uh, this, in 2 Samuel 6.23, that, that the daughter of Saul, who was the wife of King David, one of the wives of King David, uh, was rather grand, considering herself a princess, 
and she was very upset that David had made a fool of himself dancing before the ark as they brought it into Jerusalem. And he became angry with her and said, uh, uh, that's it, you know, uh, um, uh, um, I will be honored by the maidservants of whom you've spoken. And Michal, or Michelle, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. That's how they translate it there. But the word is the same in the, in the, in the Septuagint translation, the same word. She had no uh, children until the day of her death. So she had some after? It's the same word. It has no bearing on what happens after that point. Uh, in English, it implies that the situation changes. It does not imply that in Greek. So do not be vexed by that word. There you go. You should never be vexed. All right. Let us now move along to phone calls. Buddy the Elf, what's your favorite color? Of course, I have a lot of lines open, 888-914-9149. But let us go to Paige, who is calling in from San Francisco, California. Paige, what can I do for you? Hello? Yes, what can I do for you? Okay, so I'm actually from Dallas, Texas, not San Francisco, oh. but that's okay. Oh, well, Dallas. <laughs> oh, that's a big difference, Paige. I've been to yes. both places. A big <laughs> difference. Trust me. Yes. Oh, I know. I know. Uh, that's, what, that's just why I had to clarify. I am not from San Francisco. Oh, yeah. Thank you for clarifying. Um, Sometimes yes. we get wires crossed here at Relevant Radio. <laughs> That's okay. So I have a question for you, Father Simon. Um, I I am a Protestant, yes. and something that has um, been brought to my attention recently was this um, idea that is mainly found among Catholics and Orthodox Christians um, mm, yeah. of this this idea that um, one must be free from all mortal sin uh, before dying in order to appear um, clean or, or worthy or pure um, before, before judgment. Um, and so yes. my question is, where in the Bible can you point me to that, um, that defends this stance? And if there is a place in the Bible that, that defends this, does it contradict Paul's teachings that are found in Romans 6 through 8? Um, this idea of we are free from sin and we are no longer slaves to, slaves to sin through the shedding of yes. Christ's blood on the cross. Yes. 1 John 5.16. That is the text, uh, the proof text that we use for the idea of mortal sin. 1 John 5.16, if you see any brother commit a sin uh, that is not unto death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin is not, uh, well, let, let me get it in, in Greek just to make sure I'm not messing this up. Uh, if anyone sees uh, the brother, his brother, sinning a sin, committing a sin uh, that is not uh, unto death, let him ask and uh, he will give him life. But to those who are sinning, not unto death, uh, there is such a thing as sin unto death. And about that, I say, uh, you can't implore. It's it's uh, uh, um, this idea of sinning unto death. This is clearly in the context. It's not physical death. It's spiritual death. And and of course, that's the the text that 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 we feel 
we talk about mortal and venial sin. And the problem with us Catholics is we sometimes think venial sin's a good sin. There's no such thing as a good sin. It is all an offense against the infinite uh, right. grandeur of God. Uh, whether, mm-hmm. But venial means, it's a Latin word meaning pardonable, and uh, mortal means is a Latin word meaning unto death. So that's the text. And, you know, that the, the idea of we're saved by grace through faith, that that we Catholics agree with mainline Protestants that, you know, we're saved by grace through faith. In other words, we're saved by what God gives. And we accept what God gives through faith. And I always point out to people that the word faith really, in its, in its root meaning, and in Greek especially, it means trust. And, and obedience is part of trust. That what mm-hmm. we believe is I am free to resist the grace of God. I can say no to God's gift. And, and uh, that saying no, I say no, not just with my words, but by what I do. So if I am pursuing something that is, that is, that, that, that makes my relationship to God a contradiction, you know, I, I, I'll never forget, I had a barber who was Pentecostal, really believed in salvation, you know, uh, free gift to God, you know, grace alone. Uh, uh, and, and he said, well, I'm saved, once saved, always saved, I'm going to heaven. And uh, he would pause the haircut to go do drug deals. I didn't go to that barber very long because I thought I was going to get shot up. He's a good barber, too. But, uh, you know, somebody's going to come and, and pepper his uh, his uh, barber shop with bullets, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to be there. So, you know, but he would say, you Catholics, you, you know, you're sinning, and at least we know that drinking, dancing, and all that, that's all sin, and you're all going to, you know, but... You, it was a very strange thing. And, and I think that that idea of, of free will is kind of worked into the genetics of, of, uh, of, of the Lutheran tradition and the Calvinist tradition, both. Um, that, that Luther and Calvin really, Luther, Luther he believed in uh, uh, a limited uh, sense of, of, of free will that, uh, that, that he believed that there was a positive predestination that that people were chosen to go to heaven. He didn't worry about people cho- think about people going to hell. Calvin thought of uh, he had a double predestination, and and if you really look at the sense of scripture, I think that scripture does does say no, you're free and you must choose Christ, not in what, simply what you say, but in what you do. So I don't know of if course. this helps at all. So you know well, but that so idea of it, mortal it sin is, I think, biblical. Go on. Yeah, so um, real quick, I'll just point out that, you know, in, in some commentaries, um, going back to First John 5, 16, um, at one point he says there is a sin that leads to death. And a lot of people have um, interpreted and cross-referenced this verse with, um, the, I forget where it is mentioned in the Bible, but the one unforgivable sin, of course, as we know, it's rejecting, rejecting the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, that is the the one sin that is completely um, just unforgivable, um, and there is condemnation for those who reject it. So, you know how how do, would you say that that is an an accurate example of what this text might be referring to? I, well, you know, I even look at the the the, un, the so-called unforgivable sin. This is one that God chooses not. It's a funny thing. You can't say God can't do this. He can do anything he wants. But he right. chooses not to be able, in a sense, to forgive that sin. Because if I say, you know, that uh, this, this is all nonsense, this is the Holy Spirit, I, you know, God's wrong, I'm right. As long as we're in that position, 
then God cannot move in our life. But the minute we say, we realize, I always say God has this problem. He thinks he's God. You know, and most of my spiritual life is just trying to convince me that that's true. When I admit you're God, I'm not. Then he can move in my life. The sin against the spirit is in a sense to know more that God is pleased to tell me. I'm right. God's wrong. But when I leave that position, then God can begin to move in my life. To forgive means to let go. And there, God can let go of sin, except when I refuse to let go of it. He allows me to cling to it. So I don't know that it refers to it. The classical, the traditional thing, and, you know, we go back a long ways. The early church, they really did believe that that First John five sixteen referred to uh, certain acts that complete, were so completely foreign to the, the very nature of God, like murder, you know, that, that those put us outside the grace of God, but that we could repent from them. So I don't know if that helps, but it, it clarifies our position, I think, and 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 that's a good thing. Yeah, so. yeah. Thank you, thank you yeah. for touching on well, that. Thank um, you. The, the second, if you don't mind, the second part to my question, and I think that for me this is the most important to understand is, you know, if if that is true, then is it safe to say that 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 concept does not contradict what what Paul writes about in Romans about being dead to sin and alive to God? That um, I mean, it says in in Romans. Six, six through six through seven, our old man was crucified with him, that the body yes. of sin might be done away with. Yes, yeah. The, the, what what Paul is saying is this is what is happening if we accept it. At any point in my life, I can reject the grace of God, and I can say, "No, I'm coming down from that cross." You know, I think that's an important thing that they said. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. He was the Son of God, and he did not come down from that cross. And so it is with me that if I wish to be the son of God, I remain with Christ on the cross, whatever that means in my life in the particular situation. So the ability to come down from the cross is still ours as long as we live in this world. So I don't think it contradicts what St. Paul is saying, that, that if we cooperate with the grace of God, then that process really does happen. And I love what C.S. Lewis, who also was not Catholic, uh, said that, that he called, the devil calls God a sophist who will save someone on the flimsiest of pretexts. We count on the mercy mm-hmm. of God and, 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 uh, and, uh, you know, that, that we can, we can get a little scroopy about, about mortal sin. And we should be, we should never want to offend God. But on the other hand, uh, God is always anxious for us to repent. Well, I'm honored that you listened, Paige, and, and thanks so much. It's a very good question and a very difficult topic. Greater minds than thine and mine have argued about it for centuries. But uh, we'll get together in heaven and we'll ask the Lord if, <laughs> to what degree we were right. So God bless you, Paige. And again, Dallas, not San Francisco. All right. God bless. Stay warm. It's still warm down there. It's cold where I am. God bless. Let's go to uh, uh, let's go to uh, James from Houston, even warmer than Dallas. Hi, Father. Yeah, just a just a touch, <laughs> a little bit <Okay>. warmer. <laughs> First of all, I just want to preface this by saying you are by far one of my most favorite people in the world. Well, thank and you. Well, to know me well, to know me well, uh, my secretary used to say, "To know him well is to be far less impressed." But go on, James. What can I do for you? <laughs> well, earlier you said that um, God in His mercy uh, allows people to go to hell, allows them to choose hell. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious. I'm just curious about that because in my reversion story, uh, a lot of it has. I spent 20 years away from the church after I left the mm-hmm. Capuchin Friary and got married. And yeah. at the end of it, 
it was like God picked me up by the scruff of my neck and slapped me in the face and said, enough of your shenanigans. It's time to get back on track. And I'm just wondering, like, isn't that a way of God, like, stopping me from choosing to go to hell? And, like, doesn't that kind of affirm the Protestant idea of, like, some Protestant ideas of predestination of heaven and hell? You know, I, I, I think, James, that that the longing of your heart was for God. And, and you know, I really do believe that I've known people who walked away from the Lord in a big way. And, and uh, you know, they always realized there was something missing. But God, as long as we're living in this world, God never stops trying. And and if if we turn our eyes toward him, then and we see, but there we're drawn back. But it is possible, I really believe, to to refuse the grace of God. And wish it wasn't, but I think it is. So very interesting, James. And praise God that you were able to turn and see him again. And. Uh, and be a blessing to those who love you. Speaking of blessings to those who love us, Drew is coming up, and he is a blessing. <laughs> 